So I've been doing this podcast for a little bit of time and I've had a ton of fun. And sometimes you just hit pay dirt with one of the guests that are actually coming on to discuss issues surrounding real estate or technology or anything else. I sent Jonathan Miller an email, I don't know, maybe a month ago or so, thinking there was absolutely no way that he would respond and come on the podcast to discuss uh, property valuations, how he got started in the business and everything under the sun. He responded and said, I'd love to. That tells you a lot about Jonathan Miller's character. Jonathan Miller is the president and CEO of Miller Samuel uh, Incorporated, the real estate appraisers and consultants across New York City uh, and many, many other places across the country. He is the go-to for many brokers and frankly, anyone in the real estate industry to figure out what a place is actually worth. Um, and his career is long, multifaceted and incredibly interesting. I sit down with him and discuss everything from where the market's likely headed to what this new tax plan will do to more importantly and interestingly how he started in this business and, and how he grew it to what it was uh, today or what it is today i should say it's a conversation that i've been excited about for a long period of time it's longer uh, than our typical conversations because i just felt he had so much interesting uh, stuff to say so i hope you enjoy it as much as i do jonathan thank you so much uh, for being here today and joining me Oh, I'm I'm uh, looking forward to our conversation. I follow you on social media quite a bit, and you know, you put out great stuff. So I'm very sorry about that. <laughs> um, so so let's start out with the cliche. Sort of tell me about your background. You you have a very very interesting backstory. So I, I want to hear a little bit about it. Well, uh, I actually went to college to be in hotel management, which uh, you know I don't think I knew what an appraisal was. And how to value, you know, it never dawned on me. And I um, ended up in the business for three years and couldn't stand it. Like literally, there was every day was torture. And uh, and so my so my wife and I, I was working in Chicago. Um, and we we just uh, we basically went to a wedding here in uh, in New York and loved Manhattan and. Uh, I had just quit my job and became a realtor in Chicago for six months. Century 21 was the number two agent in the office after six months uh, as a dull and boring numbers guy. Like I had my own thing. And a lot of what I learned in that six months, and I'm still close with some of the people that I worked with, um, is you know how to convey information to people and uh, basically how to tell the story of the market and I and I really found that fascinating and uh, and anyway so I moved to New York and um, basically knocked on the door got a job at, at an on-site sales uh, company um, uh, marketing a new condo on the Upper East Side and within six months the manager and we were basically guides showers we would show people when they came up to the sales office and, and at that time, I was sort of a nerd. Um, my father and my then brother-in-law uh, worked together, and we, we back sort of pre-computers on the consumer level, you know, put the whole, off the whole schedule A of an offering plan in a Hewlett-Packard 41C using bitmapping. So you could walk around like you would with a, with a PDA now, and pull up prices, common charges, right in your hand really easily. And that was in 1985. And we kept seeing all these appraisers come in, didn't have any data, any information. 
and they were totally reliant on what we gave them. And most of them weren't for, in Manhattan. They were outside of Manhattan. So we ended up, uh, I, I shouldn't um, omit that my wife and my sister became, were, became when we were doing this, they became on-site agents at, rent, like at rental buildings. And then we all got together and said, let's start Miller Samuel. And uh, because we have all these appraisers coming in, we can do better. We're sort of tech savvy. It's laughable now. Um, and that was 1986. And 31 years later, we're still, you know, my parents retired uh, back in 2002. Um, my parents funded us and the kids ran the business. And um, my, so right now our company is owned by my wife, my sister and I. And uh, we have two firms. We have a we have a um, commercial firm and a residential firm. I'm basically known for Miller Samuel, and we have a commercial firm. And my partner John Cicero, who's an MAI commercial appraiser, uh, runs Miller Cicero, and we have fun. So um, my my parents famously uh, fired myself and my sister, uh, <laughs> and then my brother-in-law fired me. Uh, there was a dispute over bagels in the metro. Wow, this was this was back in the day. Right, I feel like there's more to that story. Yeah, there's there's a lot. It's <laughs> it's it's really, but the court sealed the documents. Right. Unfortunately, of course, of can't course. go into it. Um, but I mean, one of the things is, is working with family is that some people say don't do it, and other people right. have incredible success. So sure, I you know I would love to hear about why your situation works. Yeah, you know it was it was interesting. Um, you know, I think we all had separate duties. Uh, separate responsibilities, uh, just enough so that we weren't on top of each other. And also, we're pretty close-knit, and I don't know, the chemistry just worked. We really didn't fight that much uh, or have you know major disagreements. We were just all really hungry to survive and make it work, and it just sort of did over time. I, you know, I think... I think uh, you just have to be really cognizant if you're working with family that you just have to have different, you have to do different things so you're not overlapping because then you get that sort of competitive thing going. But maybe we're just sort of this unique situation because we're very close. My sister, wife, and I, who are what's left, are very close. And you don't bring the fights home, I would imagine, or you try your best. No, no. In fact, um, uh, we actually, when we get together for holidays or whatever, uh, you know, we talk about appraising. Oh my God. <laughs> so, so you really, you know, I, I pretty much say that so no one tries to invite themselves over to our house for dinner uh, because the conversation, I, you know, I've been accused of being dull and boring. Uh, tell me, I mean, you, you brought up appraising. No one um, knows. Let me put it this way. You have a way of explaining what an appraiser does because my clients, the ones that I interact with, you know, as I mentioned to you a minute ago, they look at an appraiser as just someone in the background that the bank hires to make sure that they can get their purchase done, which is way different than what an appraiser actually does. So give me a context of what an appraiser actually does and what their job really is. Sure. So, you know, like the law, there's many disciplines of valuation. So the stereotype for the appraisal profession is working for banks, appraising the collateral for a mortgage. And uh, one of the biggest misnomers is most people think the appraiser is working for you, the borrower, because you paid an appraisal fee. <laughs> but we don't. We work for the lender. You know, we're there, uh, you know, and that was one of the problems of the housing bubble, uh, which was, you know, the, the appraiser uh, 
everybody was smarter than the appraiser because the value was always higher than it was a year ago. And uh, we became, as an industry, deal enablers. And, uh, and I know that because I'm not morally flexible, as uh, I like to think of myself, I could see the end of my career circa 2005, which is how I got into social media because no one understood what was happening. Just like you were saying, no one knows what we do. And all I knew is that we couldn't perform neutrally because most of the, you know, the, the big thing in the, in the bubble was mortgage brokers uh, controlled the appraiser in about 65% of, two thirds of mortgage lending was done through a mortgage broker and the mortgage would get you know, points from the bank, um, but they never got paid unless the loan closed. So you can certainly see the ramifications for an appraiser that doesn't hit the number. It's a built-in collusion. Um, whether you have the most honest, you know, neutral appraiser out there, the system was uh, structured in a way that you couldn't be neutral. And pretty much my goal in life is the neutral has become my is my favorite word in the in professional life because it's very empowering not to care about the ramifications as long as you're honest and clear and communicate the point. It's, it's, uh, it's a great way to live. Um, you know, so what we found in, in the housing, but what I found is that, um, no one, it was the whole valuation sort of, you know, a mortgage broker would say, Hey, I, I needed to come in at a million two. And then we would do an appraisal and it came out rock solid at a million. So the mortgage broker said, yeah, but we need another 200,000 because so, they want to pay for college or buy a boat or whatever. And we go, well, that's an underwriting decision. It's not a valuation decision. And the way that you, and they go, okay. And then the way that you understood how the system was working is you'd never hear from them again. So I could see the writing on the wall. And then, let me go on about this, but it's kind of, it's kind of interesting. In That's when I learned about the power of neutrality. Not that I wasn't neutral before, but it's like, Good times and bad times, you know, I, you know, my name is all I have, and that's what I'm worried about. So what happened, I don't mean to be all pious, but I, I, started, I started blogging um, in 2005. I didn't know how else to get the word out. And then some of my posts started being picked up by Bankrate, and CNBC came to my office. And uh, I basically said something like, during the bubble with this mortgage broker system, 75% of the appraisals being done today aren't worth the paper they're written on. And uh, all my peers, which you know, ironically now have all lost their license or you know, out of business, said, come on, Miller, sour grapes. You know, what, are you, what are you doing? And, um, and then 2008, after Lehman, CNBC replayed the clip and said, here's somebody that told us this was going to happen three years because I had predicted three years um, because I could just see the insanity only from my optics, which is I needed to come in at a million too. And I just said, this is going to end badly. And, uh, and then all of a sudden in 2008, I'm a genius. But all I am is just applying sort of morality and neutrality to valuation. Um, so we were talking about neutrality and ethics in the appraisal industry. How do you, just from a practical standpoint, that's really tough. 
right? You, you have, and I don't mean neutrality. I mean, when you have your own business, when you're feeding your kids, when you're doing all these things, specifically in, you know, it's easy for, for me to look back and say, oh, I would have been a great lawyer during 2008 and 2007 when clients were, it was the wild west and everybody was making money. What, not to be cliche, what grounded you? Do you think like, because this was antithetical to what most businesses were doing in the end, it turned out great uh, for you and people, honestly, that, that. Uh, think long-term and act ethically, but what do you think stopped you from putting your hand in the cookie jar? So I think it was the principle of if I do it once, there's no going back. And I just, I felt that. So the probably the most sp- stressful period of my career was the housing bubble. I've been doing this since 86, so it's 31 years. Because uh, we weren't doing well, and all the appraisers that were morally flexible were riding in the back of limos doing deals with banks, you know, in bulk volume, and uh, and I just said, boy, I missed that class, and and I just I just thought that there's no going back. This is the way it is. I have a mortgage. I have four kids, happily married, and it was extremely stressful. Um, but I just felt like in the long run, sanity would return at some point and I would, I would be one of the last people standing. And that's exactly what happened. I, I just, you know, after the financial crisis began and, you know, with the Lehman moment, I always, I think of that. I could, I could tell that the mindset, it was a systematic sort of meltdown and I could just felt the mindset mindset um, snapped and all of a sudden all the premonition all the feelings about where things are going and how you know the values don't matter you know no one gets hurt I just you know maybe it's old-fashioned but I just felt like this was wrong and uh, and I couldn't I couldn't break and that's really served me well um, because I'm not I it's not like I'm, you know, I, I don't profess, to, you know, now that I've sort of morphed into a lot of uh, market research, you know, you know, for Douglas Elman, I publish research all around I've over 30 markets with a bunch of new markets to come. It's the same principle um, that, you know, people don't realize when they know that you're not morally flexible, but you're not um, obscenely obtuse, you know, that you're... I, I think they respect you, even though they may put you through the ringer. And in the long run, uh, I found like with, you know, court testimony, attorneys that, you know, attack me. And, you know, if you listen to read the transcript, you think I was, you know, one, you know, step above a piece of lint in your dryer. Uh, all of a sudden they're calling me for, you know, for, for work or for, you know, to be an expert. So, um, and then just one other aside with this neutrality concept. This is my fascination is the concept of neutrality, which is sort of like honesty or morality, but, you know, neutrality is, is I don't know, it's very freeing for me. And um, I have a situation right now where our national, the appraisal industry, our leading trade group, meaning the biggest and probably the most well-known called the Appraisal Institute, has become largely irrelevant and and has is trapped in another time and uh, and really not serving their membership well but everybody that is part of this professional association has letters after the name so they can't really say anything because they have an SRA or an MAI designation but 
they're seething. And so uh, in late 2016, a little bit over a year ago, they issued this policy where they're going to take, because they their membership has fallen by like 40% in a decade, no end in sight, and leadership is jetting around the world first class visiting valuation conferences. It's, it's bizarre. They went in and they want to take all the appraisers, all the local chapters around the country, just millions of dollars, uh, just take it from them and then give them, dole it out when they need it. And, and uh, no one was saying anything. And I'm not even a member. I quit 10 years ago for a similar reason. And I started, I wrote a very long essay on my blog, sent it to a few fr th friends, and it went viral in my community. My website, you know, I was looking at the downloads. It was incredible. And it became common knowledge, you know, and I became to th this group that got that New York blogger and they couldn't go after me and I was almost daring them to sue me um, because I was just reporting what was happening. I became a clearinghouse for everybody was afraid to speak in the industry. And I don't know if it's going to change that organization, but it certainly made them now relatively um, uh, an, an outsider, you know, and, and now appraisers are really empowered. I'm not saying it's all because of what I did, but but it's this it was this sort of movement of they couldn't do anything because I had didn't have an axe to grind I didn't have letters after my name they, they you know they would threaten others that did um, and I uh, and it was all about neutrality and it's incredibly empowering to be able to be that way to not have an axe to grind in the long run you know you you know it's it just it's you create a career, I think, that can be more satisfying. So just, just to touch oh, that upon That was really, like, blowhardy. No, it but. wasn't. No, no. And I'll tell you why it wasn't blowhardy. And, and what I was thinking of is you keep saying neutrality, but I keep thinking reputation. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is that, you know, we were talking for a second before we were recording about social media and the transmission of information and how quickly that happens, right? And how, you know, when I when I deal with brokers, things have to get done right away. Sure. Um, and that's not to say no one's ethical, but the the um, the impetus is on speed. Right. And no longer, I don't want to say no longer on reputation, but if you're great at what you do, no one really cares. When you say these things in terms of not having an axe to grind and actually doing the right thing, I think it's... Um, uh, it's a ray of light, and, and again, I don't mean that in this, wow, it's sort of an amazing way, but realistically, because you know, we deal with a lot of the same people, and one guy sort of is on the sidelines and saying, buddy, the place is worth 800K, I don't care you know, if you need to make it 900K. Right. There's this like beacon of truth in the numbers themselves that almost have nothing to do with you, right? You're just right. reporting on something else, right. something that's not based on you. Um, that's refreshing. So I think... But the trick is... Yeah. To, um, it's almost, you know, what's the definition of diplomacy? Being a, able to tell somebody to go screw themselves and that person is thank, thanking you for telling them that? Yes. You know, yes. It, it's kind of that, you know, because, it, and that's the storytelling component is that, you know, I'm not, we don't run around kill deals all day. That's not what we do. But when we, you know, when something happens, there's a reason and you have to convey it. And even though that goes against maybe a client's, financial interests, maybe they're not a good client. Um, I probably spend uh, a quarter of my time turning down work because 
I'm incredibly selfish in the sense that I don't want to deal with someone that's going to call me every five minutes. Where is it? What's going on? I'm just calling you. You know, I don't want that. And so that's a niche served by somebody else and good for them. Um, it's just not my thing. I, you know, I think, I think small business men and women want to focus on getting the best clients they can. And that's a big time saver, not a time saver, well it is, but it's a big use of your time um, that you really, you know, you, you when you work for somebody and it's painful, I generally don't want to work for them again. And maybe they don't want to work with me, but either way, I don't want to work with this, these people anymore because of what they're, you know, hey, we need it to be this number or we need it in 30 minutes. So we told you you had a month, but now we need it in 30 minutes. And they do that every time you know, you, you learn. And, you know, some people, I had somebody tell me that was president of a appraisal organization that, which I'm now the president of, this was probably 20 years ago, where they said, you have to work like you don't need the money. And that's to me. So I just think that's so true. Even though I need the money, I have four kids, I have college, I have uh, my three oldest, you know, the first two got married a year apart and the And then one year later, this fall, my third is getting married. And, you know, that whole thing about the parents of the groom don't pay, it's a myth. (laughs) Even though they're all, you know, all the fiancés or wives are awesome. Um, uh, And then my my youngest, who's a five-year gap, who's in college, said, uh, don't worry about me, Dad. I'm going to be quite a while before I get married. Which is fantastic. You have a couple years to save. Yes, I do. <laughs> and even like they can do to make your life which a little bit easier. Which adds more pressure because I have to turn down work I don't want to take. Right, which which probably kills you. <laughs> probably kills you. Um, not to sort of take a left, but but I, I wanted to. You talk about writing in a very clear, concise way, and um, I, I love reading. And I recently read a book uh, that was called "Nobody Wants to Read Your Shit." <laughs> it's a fantastic book. Love it. It's super short. It's very much to the point, and really, it's based on that. Um, and your blog entries and even the way you write your market reports, you let the numbers do the job. Right. And you have very short to the point, this is what the market is sort of saying. Yeah. A concise way to do that. Have you always written like that? And what is the advantage of doing that? If that sure. So it's to keep my persona being a dull and boring numbers guy. So uh, – so in my, it's funny, my weekly housing notes that I write are the opposite of my market reports in one sense, because it's sort of a comedic, uh, you know, I have a lot of sarcasm. Um, I think it's because I became a prolific blogger in my view uh, back in 05, not so much anymore, just these weekly notes, because I used to blog, I do like four or five posts a day. And I hate that. It was, it was the boom times and uh, for blogging, and now there's so many other outlets. But what I, uh, what I found with the reports, so, so with the market reports, uh, what's amazing about my relationship with Douglas Solomon, you know, um, is about 23 years. Um, 1994 is when I started. And, and in the beginning, um, I just, my own, when they asked me, to do it or you know we it sort of came up in a conversation I said only one condition there's only one and that you can never ever tell me what to say ever it's a one one time and that's it and uh, to their credit not once had they ever done that ever 
And because I have a zero tolerance policy on that because, so the whole idea is I'm, I'm, I, I felt like I, this has to be a neutral document. Look at me. I'm aligned with a broker, you know, you know big, huge brokerage firm, largest in the, in the area, in the region. And, um, and in order for me to be a service to them, this has to be a standalone research report and not a brochure. Right. Most market reports have like, you know, the executives and it's sort of a, you know, it, I see this with many people that write market research in the real estate business. If the market, like if sales go down or prices go down, they're literally apologizing. Like, you know, we're sorry to report. And, and my, and what I think what's been great about my relationship with Elliman is uh, they see it as an opportunity. You know, many people did really well in the dark days after Lehman um, because Tremendously well. because they weren't, you know, what's that Warren Buffett saying? When when people are running out of the room, you should be running. Right and one of my sons is, is a fireman and a policeman, um, and he's one of those guys that runs in. And that's what you have to be when you – so why not have the person providing the appraisal or the – it's like this – the person probably providing the appraisal or the research, the market report, um, gives you, I always view it as a well, neutral, using that word again, valuation benchmarks. You can make informed decisions as opposed to, well, you know, it's an appraiser and he, you know, he's going to goose the numbers up 10% and so I got to adjust for that. I don't want any of that associated with me. And uh, apparently it works because... Uh, I'm doing over 30 markets now for, for Element, and uh, you know the media goes to me. I don't have any PR. They come to me because they just want an answer, and they want to be told that this PR pitch doesn't make any doesn't make any sense, or doesn't it? Do left-handed people prefer one bedrooms over studios? That sort of thing, or is this a really a valid thing? And um, to me, it just makes it fun because then you're 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 getting away from all the posturing. Well, let's be positive. Let's be, you know, let's be upbeat. When the consumer knows more than you know many of the brokers do um, about their submarket, why not be straightforward? Do you uh, just jumping on that? Are you sometimes shocked? So I I you know do a number of transactions a year, and I'm sometimes shocked about the prices that people pay right now. And so if you are looking at a particular building, let's say you're not even appraising it, but you know what it's worth. Do you yourself, I, I oddly think about this sometimes, get sticker shock from what people are paying for a lot of these places? Or is it kind of just that, whatever they want to do? No, I'm completely jaded. Right. And, um, and, I, and we're all over the map. So uh, my favorite sort of comparison was, um, I've told this story many times in public speaking, but uh, I I remember 20 years ago going to an estate appraisal some, you know, for, for tax purposes and the broker leading me into the apartment said, now this needs a little work. And that apartment was all, the, it was just a one bedroom. All the walls were covered with human feces. Nice. And uh, there were three, I believe, chicken coops in the apartment with the six sons of the deceased chain smoking. So I had to duck down 
at the entry door to be able to see all you know across the 20 foot living room to the windows i had to literally duck my head because the smoke was so thick obviously i didn't touch anything i didn't put anything down i got an instant headache and then an hour later i'm going into a huge townhouse in the upper east side with gold play it was versailles and that was like in a span of like a two and a half hour period so you don't you don't all i'm thinking about when i go in there is is there anything like this you know have i seen anything like this what you know and and i start thinking about the amenities but all that other stuff i don't it's sort of like riding on the interstate for like five hours at 70 miles an hour and then you get off the exit that's how i feel like when i visit my wife's family in detroit where you know houses are 125 150,000 in the subdivision and they're all the same um, and I'm looking, that wouldn't even buy a, like a storage room in a basement in Manhattan or a parking space, maybe a third of a parking space. Um, so that's where I realized how bizarre our market is relative to the norm in the U.S. Yeah, it's insane. My, my wife and I cry about this uh, every single <laughs> night because we look at listings and then we, we, we then map the banks in the area that we could theoretically rob. Uh, <laughs> To buy in a place. And then totally. I represent the eventual buyers of these places. So I cry at the closing. There's a lot of crying. No, 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 no. Actually, uh, I, to be honest, yeah. uh, uh, for the, you know, probably for the first 10 or maybe dozen years of my profession uh, or my professional career, I would come home visibly depressed that I was the biggest <laughs> loser in the world because, you know, I'm in a, $25 million townhouse and they've got a $20 million house in the Hamptons, one, you know, in Vermont right. and a, you know, place in Aspen, you know, and, and, you know, and I'm, I have one house. <laughs> so, right. So you really, you lose context. And I think that that's actually incidentally for another time, but context is my, my second favorite word. Um, because when you talk about the market, it's all about the context. So, so uh, last question I have for you, actually, in, in terms of context and, and the market, I won't be one of those that, that asks you, uh, where do you see the market going? You get that 400 times a day. No, only 300 times 300, a day. right. So this won't be 301. I want to talk about what you think, and this is just based on you, the tax plan, the Trump tax plan is going to do, because I've had deals fall apart. Some clients have lost their ever-loving minds as a result of it. Sure. And... You know, I don't know if it's going to go left or right. I saw you had some sort of a summary about what Moody's thought the market was going to look like. But I wonder, I guess, in your opinion, whether or not there's other outliers that we aren't even sort of considering when we talk about the tax plan. Like, do interest rates go up as a result of this? You know, is there an oversaturation in terms of inventory or anything else? Like, what, what do you see as sort of happening in the marketplace itself, specifically as a result of this, right? Is it doomsday sure. or not? No. Sure, sure. So it is not doomsday. But it cannot be ignored, right? And 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 so I think whatever impact there is, uh, so let's start about what that impact could be. The first thing is, you know, just backing up a step and saying um, we just came out of a what I, an era which I'm desperately trying to get this phrase into the um, the real estate urban dictionary if there is such a thing, which is uh, aspirational pricing. I coined that several years ago during the frenzy because people, you know, someone would buy something for five million, put a million into it and put it on the market for twenty five. And 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 there was 
no more shame about wildly overpricing your listing. It was more like a branding thing, you know, that, that you know, in story t- stories in the media. And so there was this massive glut of high-end property. It was skewed the... It skewed to the high end, and you know, combined with all the high end condominiums, um, it took the sellers and the developers two to three years to like de anchor, if there's such a word, from the price that they were holding on to for dear life, the asking price. And uh, so, if you notice in the, in the news, there's been a lot of reports of higher end sales occurring, but everyone you look at. Yeah, it took th- four years and a 35% price cut. And and so, but even after that 25% price cut, when you put them all in a, in a bucket together, they create a record price. It just shows you how disconnected sellers were, right? So individual homeowners, when they're going to sell, in my experience, take about two years to adapt to a sudden change or a, not even a sudden but a gradual change in the market they tend buyers are right in it like they are the second there's an opportunity to save money they're they're on it right and that happened right after um uh the um you know lehman moment as i call it where uh where sales fell contracts fell 75 percent overnight and then within about eh, probably 14 months after that by you know, 14 months, so that'd be like early first quarter 2010, we started to see like robust activity. So what, what, what I think the takeaway is from this is that there is nothing in this tax law that is good for housing, uh, in my view, other than maybe some, you know, corporate profits, maybe goose up employment, even though we're already at full employment and you know, some hand-wringing to hope that maybe it adds to, show, uh, stimulates some kind of wage growth, which seems highly unlikely because corporations have been running at record profits for a long time, and they haven't had to raise wages, so now they have a tax cut, they're just going to buy back stock. Uh, you know, but, you know, some will invest, there'll be some, but that'll be, I, to me, the examples being bandied about now are sort of on the margin. Anyway, so I'm getting off of the point, but the idea is that I think that um, this skews to the high end. So there's really two major components of this that impact the housing market. The first is uh, the uh, reduction of the mortgage interest that you can, you know, the threshold has been dropped from a million to 750 on new mortgages. You're grandfathered on your million dollar mortgage. And so all that does you know, in a market where, the, like Manhattan specifically, where the median price is a million one, um, you know, it impacts more people than it would be in Kansas, right? I mean, clearly, you know, it's nominal in Kansas. I think the bigger impact is uh, the the $10,000 cap on the, prop, the combination of uh, property taxes and SALT, state and local taxes, because the east and west coasts of the U.S. are high-tax high-cost housing markets, you know, besides just the, the values, uh, but also the, um, you know, the, the, the taxes associated with living in, that, in, that, in, that, in these locations. So think about, and just to be really, and this is on the margin, but think about 
you know, in Greenwich, I always use this example um, when I think about, you know, um, the, in Westchester County, the average high-end uh, single-family house has 50000 a year in property taxes, all right? And that's not including state and local. And in Westchester, I live in Fairfield County, and taxes there are triple, basically. Property taxes, I find, are roughly triple what they are in Fairfield County. So look at, uh, look at 50000 a year. Now, with a $10,000 cap, you're 40000 exposed, which 37% of that, assuming that's the top tax bracket, uh, is, um, you know, is not insignificant, but not massive for a million-five house. Right. But the, um, the uh, so, so that enters into it, but, I, uh, but state and local taxes on top of that. So the argument is made during this whole process, I was tracking the, um, and actually just a few days ago I put up, I have a uh, sort of a summary of the merge, the two houses, uh, their versions merged into the law and signed on December 22nd. But what, what is really interesting is that the argument was made, well, you know, if you lose the deductions, you know, the wealthy, you're getting a big tax cut. And I go, well, that is really they're mutually exclusive because if you're a wealthy person and you have a big house, uh, you don't say, hey, I'm going to overpay for my house because I'm going to get a big tax cut. It's a, you know, you look at it in one bucket. That, that's not, people don't go out and buy a, a luxury sports car and be willing to overpay because, or, you know, be, I mean, the, that's not how human beings look at assets. So, so it will have ramifications, but I think it's relatively short term. I think, you know, this two-year period is going to take buyers and sellers to find this new equil equilibrium, and there's more of that to do as you move up in price. Um, and then once it happens, I think after that, that's it, because, or not maybe a year or two more after that, all this process seems to be is extracting the federal government. Um, I used to say from its implicit promise or, you know, um, sort of spurring home ownership through tax law. But I was corrected by uh, a Wall Street Journal reporter who was telling me that, no, they were just two separate incidents that sort of, you know, two lines of thinking in the bills that ended up coming together and having sort of a double of impact on housing, but it wasn't intended that way. And also that's how these deductions that we've long enjoyed came to being as well. So it isn't some sort of conspiracy, even though, you know, it, it clearly seemed like an attack on the housing market. And, you know, NER said 10% uh, price declines average across the U.S. And Moody said 10% in Manhattan. And I look at that and I go, I, I don't understand how that is remotely possible. Clearly, there's going to be downward impact, but I think it's modest. And I think um, <laughs> it's... It's modest in terms of, you know, the economy is booming. Not everybody feels it because wage growth isn't there like it should be. But it's not the end of the world, but it is people aren't comfortable. And what do people do in the housing market when they're not comfortable? They pause. They wait. Maybe they rent. You know, there, there's all kinds of scenarios to play out. I'll ask you one, and I promise you if that was the final question, but I'll ask you one other because you reminded me of something. The, 
the democratization of information at this point, right? The ability to actually find uh, information on what your neighbor sold their property at, um, you know, how the building is in terms of brownstone or blogs or, or, or message boards on Curved or anything else. I've met with a lot of people, and I think it's going to change the scope of real estate to a certain extent, specifically in the broker field. So you mentioned a, a seller that doesn't want to sell for a specific amount. Right, and let's take a normal case. Let's say instead of twenty-five million, that seller's at two point five million, and that seller says, "No, you know, my broker told me this place is worth two point five, and maybe the broker said that because the broker's in their second year of doing this, and they, no, they want to get the listing. They, they want to get the listing, right? So they tell them some price, and they think, well, they're sticking with me anyway, so I'll I'll get them down to two three two two. If you have thoughts on this, what do you think happens? I think it's going to be a great thing, by the way, in the real estate industry. In the next five years or so, the amount of information that you can actually get as a buyer or a seller. Um, it's just getting better every day. It's just getting better, right? Yeah. And and so and that's not stopping. No. Like that, that's a perpetual. Do you think that curbs then that aspirational pricing a little bit? So, for instance, if, if, if I own 13C and you come up to me and say, Daniel, look, it's not going to go for, you know, 2.5 because I know that 12C – which uh, is in crappier condition because I just pu- pulled the permits, right? And they let's say they renovated it. They only got two four. You're not going to get five. I, I don't. I don't think it's going to stop it. I think we already have enough of that information now for you to figure that out. This was a one-off moment in economic history. Uh, if you can you know, give me a second to sort of, you know, um, to go through it. So you look at billionaires row. And that seemed like the future, you know, super luxury. Let's, you know, you know, hundred million dollar apartments are a dime a dozen. Um, there's so many billionaires in the world, and uh, I'm not contending that there isn't, um, you know, there isn't demand for, you know, there won't always be some sort of demand for very high end properties. But I think what we got wrong in this last cycle was the scale of how many buyers there are, how many, you know, how many of these properties can actually be sold. Everybody got the same idea at the, around the same time. And the reason why this last five years, this sort of development explosion um, occurred is because of, uh, and I'll get to the, the point that you're bringing up, but just sort of as background, is that, uh, you know, the world after the financial crisis, you uh, is covered being covered by investors looking for higher returns in a in a low interest rate world and capital is f- fleeing you know uh, or not fleeing trying to find a home and the commercial banks are still licking their wounds from the from the housing bubble um, you know uh, f- massive fines and you know all the things that should have been done right away but you know under the guise of you know t- too big to fail. Um, and, and so you have this, this rush to build. Well, the existing property owners are looking and saying, hey, we saw this every day. You know, they sold something, you know, or they put something on the market for $100 million. Well, if they're worth $100 million, then my $2.5 million listing has to be worth four. I mean, that, that literally was the thinking. So it wasn't about facts. It wasn't about information. It was merely looking at super macro examples and projecting it onto your own property. And it was universal across the country. So it's no wonder in many of the markets that I cover, the, uh, the high-end market generally, inventory continues to fall 
in the existing real estate market, not every quarter. Um, it's either flat or falling in many markets because those aspirationally priced homes are just coming off the market because the seller realized, well, it's not saleable at my number. And, and um, it was probably never worth anywhere close to what they thought. Uh, and it became some sort of weird statement on self-worth. And, and I felt like this, in many ways, I'm probably wrong, but this period we went through strikes me as just a unique moment in time. And we have to sort of, to, to get a sense of reality today, which are very close to reality, in my view, um, uh, you have to skip over the last five years <laughs> and maybe over the financial crisis and the bubble. And then you start asking yourself, well, what is normal behavior in housing? I don't know. But, but, I, but I do know that um, more information is good, but you know, sort of to segue to where you started this uh, interview is, is, you know, it really is about now everybody has so much information, you don't know what to do with it. So like real estate agents have morphed into, you know, they're, they're, they're attempting to be trusted advisors. You know, they're, they're stri- yeah, you know, I'm, I'm just saying like, that's the idea. I'm rolling my eyes off camera. Right, yes, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And, uh, and same thing with appraisers, you know, and I'm, you know, we all have the same components, you know, in that industry of, you know, trying to please or whatever. But, but that information, the consumer, like you said, has all this information. The broker has to have that, look at, read the same information, but then interpret it. And that's all that appraisers or people like myself are trying to do is interpret it in a way that you trust. And that can be good news and bad news. Yeah, it's just that the difference is you have no skin in the game, really. Right. Whether, which, right. which no. to me is everything. Yeah, it's everything. If you if if you have skin in the game, then you're disqualified, right. um, or 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 not disqualified, but you're you should be looked at with massive skepticism. And I that was one of my concerns back in '94 when we agreed to do this these reports for Element. The reason why we did it is because we didn't have Street Easy. We didn't have MLS. We didn't know if that comp we were using in a a report had a renovated kitchen. And we wanted to know. So we reached out and to all the big firms and they all were interested, but Element said, hey, you can, you just have to write, we want you to write a report because, you know, use this information, you know, um, in a more macro way. And it made us better, um, but it also, I think, it, it was much more efficient because we would have to call hundreds of brokers a day to say, hey, was that kitchen renovated? Was the bathroom done? You know, and, and no one else would do that. You know, it was just, everything was average. So. Jonathan Miller, the legend himself. Thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, my tonight. pleasure. I appreciate it.